We are in the book of Matthew chapter 21. Let's open up there this morning. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, and the title of the sermon is Moving Mountains, question mark. Verses 20 through 22 is what we'll be looking at, but we will start reading in verse 18 for a little bit of context. I am reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. All right, let's start reading in Matthew 21, verse 18. Early in the morning... As Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. It's God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us more than we could ever imagine. And that your good thoughts toward us outnumber all the sand on all the beaches and all the world. And that you are the God who is our loving Heavenly Father, who's present to us and with us. We ask that your presence would be wonderfully known in the preaching of your word, in the hearing of your word, in the way that we respond. Father, you love us so much, you gave your son Jesus that our sins might be forgiven and that we might have new life and whole life and abundant and vibrant life in him. Help us to experience the life of Christ this morning to be alive to you, God. Your love for us, your plan, your purposes, your truth. Help us, Holy Spirit, to hear what Jesus is saying to us and to respond rightly. And we all pray together, please, Lord, that you would help me to teach and preach in a way that is humble and honest, and helpful, and brings glory to Jesus. We pray it in that name. Amen. Amen. Well, I would like to start this morning with a little informal survey, okay? Uh, So I'm going to ask you two questions. I want you to answer, and I want you to be honest. You are, after all, in church. So be honest in your responses. So this first question is very simple. Have you ever prayed and asked God for something. Raise your hand if you've ever prayed and asked God for something. Okay, the vast majority of us. Have you ever prayed and asked God for something and got a no answer or it went unanswered? Raise your hand, leave it up. Look around, everybody. Look around, look around, look around. About the same amount of people. And yet Jesus says in the text... If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Wait a minute. That's not consistent with our experience. We just proved that that hasn't been what we've experienced. So what in the world is going on here? What does this text mean? How are we to understand it? What is Jesus saying? 
Well, first of all, it's a curious text because it starts with this crazy episode of Jesus cursing a fig tree. Poor little tree. Tree didn't do anything to him or anyone else. And Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers immediately. And we spoke about that last week because it's connected to the previous passage that we were studying last week where Jesus was after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the Temple Mount in the middle of all the Passover celebrations. And there he was intentionally confronting Israel's hypocrisy and their unfaithfulness to him, the relationship with him and the mission to which he had called them. And Jesus was confronting it in like radical, crazy, vivid terms. You remember he was flipping over the tables and flipping over the chairs. And then the next day, he curses his fig tree and it withers. Now, when Jesus curses his fig tree right here at the beginning of this text, he was either really, really hangry or it was a symbolic act with a much deeper significance. And we understand from last week that it was indeed an indictment on Israel's spiritual condition. That they, like a tree, were putting on some good shows and a good appearance, but inwardly there was no real fruit in a relationship with God and obedience to God. That there was hypocrisy in their following after God. And so Jesus says, indicting that and exposing that in the cursing of the fig tree. It was a living parable meant to be symbolic of that. But don't forget the week that is before us in the text here, that it's the beginning of the Passion Week. And even though Jesus at the beginning of the Passion Week curses this tree to expose the sins of Israel, he would by the end of the week become a curse and hang on another tree to expunge or atone for those very sins. The gospel is prevalent right here in the cursing of the tree. But all of that was lost on the disciples. They didn't recognize the significance of the cursing of the tree. They were simply amazed at the power coming from Jesus by which the tree was withered. Their only response in verse 20 is, wait a minute, how'd you do that? Not, oh Lord, I guess our hypocrisy or all the nation of Israel, how should we repent? Just, wow, how did the tree wither so quickly? They were struck by, the word is amazed, it means dumbfounded by the impossibility of such an action. So their singular response is to ask Jesus, how'd you do that? And interestingly, since they did not ask about the significance of the sign, but simply about the possibility of it, Jesus uses the occasion to teach them about prayer. He's following where they're taking the conversation. Okay, you want to talk about power? Let's talk about prayer. And so he says again in our text in verse 21, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now this is the second time that Jesus has said almost the exact same thing 
in response to questions from the disciples about power coming from Jesus. The first time was after the Mount of Transfiguration. They came off the mountain down to where the people were. And you'll remember that there was a man whose son was horribly demonized. And he had come to Jesus' disciples asking for help. Can you do something about this demonic power that is tormenting my son? And the disciples tried, but they were unable to cast out the demon to help the boy. Thankfully, Jesus, the hero of the story, every story comes along and Jesus casts out the demon for them. But then they asked Jesus, wow, why weren't we able to do that? And Jesus' response to them is almost exactly to his response to their question today. He says to them in Matthew 17, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, You can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, here's what's surprising about what's going on here with Jesus answering their questions. When the disciples are struck by, on multiple occasions, their own inabilities, when they're faced with impossibilities, and they talk to Jesus about it, Jesus doesn't simply let them off the hook because they're merely mortal. He doesn't say in response to the casting out of the demon or the withering of the tree, oh, don't worry about it. It's a God thing. You wouldn't understand. Doesn't say that to them. He doesn't let them off the hook because they are merely mortal. Rather, he actually hooks them into the possibility and power of prayer and faith. So again, because I want us to hear the words, he says in verse 21, truly, I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to mountains, go throw yourself in the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask in prayer. Now, here's what I want to do with that text. I want to just let it sit. I want to just let the text say what it says and not say anything further about it. I just want to let it sit. But as our little survey showed, anyone who has ever prayed has experienced something other than what this text seems to say. So we're compelled then, because of our experience and what the word says here, to take a deeper look. And it's not that the text is untrue or not saying what it is saying. Rather, we need to see the full truth of what it is saying. Here's what helps us. It helps us to know the assumptions that Jesus had, the assumptions that he assumed his audience had when he was speaking to them about prayer in these instances. Jesus assumes on the part of his audience that they would have, the disciples, and subsequently us, that they would have some shared understanding around number one, the nature of God, and number two, the nature of prayer. After all, this is not the first time that he's taught them about prayer. And they were, after all, Hebrews. They had the Old Testament. They had prayer lives, and they had prayer grammar. And there's much that had been revealed to them about God and the nature of God and prayer and the nature of prayer through the Old Testament. And Jesus had taught them even more. 
And so these assumptions that they should have had about the nature of God and the nature of prayer would help them to understand that there would be some qualifications or conditions pertaining to what Jesus says here about prayer. So first, the assumption about the nature of God that applies here is this. God is sovereign. That is the assumption that Jesus was working with, that his audience, the disciples, would know that that was a basic truth about God from scriptures, that God is sovereign. So that would help them to think and understand that prayer is not God relegating his sovereignty to us. Rather, prayer is God working his sovereignty through us. That's where you're supposed to go. Ooh, because that was good. So I'm going to read it again, and then you will respond appropriately. (laughs) Prayer is not God relegating his sovereignty to us. Prayer is God working his sovereignty through us. See how much better that is for all of us? (laughs) Secondly, the assumption about the nature of prayer that applies here is that prayer has to do with God's will being done. So they would understand that prayer is not the means by which we get God to do our will. Rather, prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his will. After all, on the occasion where the disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray, he said to them, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. My kingdom come, my will be done. Is that what he said? It's not what he said. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he said, pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So with a basic understanding then about the sovereignty of God and the purpose of prayer, then what Jesus said at the end of the text when he said, whatever you ask in prayer actually means whatever is according to God's sovereign will. That's the assumption that he would have been working with when he was speaking to his disciples. Whatever you ask in prayer will be given to you means whatever is according to God's sovereign will. Okay, well, we can lay hold of that theologically and intellectually, but experientially now, we are going to experience in our Christian lives some real dissonance because his will and our will don't always line up. Is that true? And so in asking God for things, we are going to experience some dissonance, some tension, because our will won't always be his will. We all testify that that's actually been our experience. And scripture demonstrates clearly that God does not grant requests that violate his own nature or his will or, not in, or are not in harmony with the purposes of his kingdom. 
In other words, no matter how much you pray, you're not going to get God to do something stupid. Something that he doesn't want to do in his wisdom, in his sovereignty, according to his purposes and his will. So as we think about this text and what Jesus said, that you can move mountains through prayer. I think we have to realize that sometimes we misunderstand the will of God and we want to move a mountain that God does not intend to move. And in that case, there will be in our prayer lives, in our Christian lives, in our lives, times of deep disappointment. And at those times, it is very important that we as God's people work from another assumption that we ought to hold that is formed by Scripture. And that assumption is this, that God is good. That is a foundational scriptural truth about God. Surely God is good in all Israel, the psalmist would declare. That was a mantra of Israel. God is good. That's foundational to our understanding of the biblical God. And so, when we experience the dissonance and the disconnect of our will colliding with the will of God and mountains that we want him to move, but it doesn't seem as though he is moving them, we have to fall back on the foundational truth. We have to work from the assumption that even though this stinks, God is good. Because as we showed through our survey, part of our prayer experience is going to be us running up against the sovereign will of God. And so we have to believe that he is actually sovereign and good. And if if we want to deny that, like God is in control and God is good, then, then we, we, we oppose the whole of Scripture. From cover to cover, the proclamation is God is sovereign, God is in control, and God is also good. We also have to recognize and be honest about the fact that sometimes in our experiences, it doesn't feel as though God is in control and God is good. Sometimes the world of our feelings and perception will collide with the world of God's word and truth. And at that time, the greater world of God's word and truth has to fully consume the world of our feelings and our perception. And they will frequently collide. Oftentimes, our experience is such that God doesn't feel or seem like he's being good in this. That's a normal experience. We've got to work from the assumptions of God's word. You know, this is why I always say, I mean, I just always say, right, like we got to read our Bibles all the time on a regular basis. Why? We have to build up our world of God's word and God's truth build up this this base of understanding of overwhelming truth that we have from God because we battle with such strong feelings and such different perceptions 
that if we don't build this one up in our hearts and minds, it's so easy for this one to just rule the day. For everything to be dictated by the way that I feel or perceive things or experience things, that has to be mitigated, shaped, informed, challenged, and transformed by the truths of the word that God is sovereign and in control and God is good. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says this phrase in verse 21, if you believe. That's what he's talking about, excuse me, in verse 22, when he says, if you believe. And back in Matthew 17, where he says, if you have faith. That's what he's talking about, is that foundational understanding about the attributes and the character of God. We often think that it simply means, if you believe that God is able. Listen, dude, that's a no-brainer. God created the whole world. He's able to deal with our dramas. In fact, Ephesians 3.20 says God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we even thought to ask or we could even imagine. We think that it means if we believe that God is able. Of course God is able. We think that it means if we just believe enough. But what Jesus means when he says, if we believe, and when he says, if you have faith, he's talking about if We believe in God as he has revealed himself as being both sovereign and good. Therefore, when the Christian does not get whatever she asks for in prayer, she's to understand that then God, in his no response or non-answer, I'll use those synonymously, then God, in his no response, is right, true, and good. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. That is no trite thing. That is no pithy saying. That is hard-fought belief. The deepest, most desperate prayers in my life have been no answers. This is not a silly platitude. This is hard-fought, desperately clung-to truth. That when we don't get whatever we ask for in prayer, we desperately believe that in whatever God is doing, He is good, right, and true. Think about, for example, the greatest unanswered prayer in all of history. Who had the greatest unanswered prayer? Who prayed the greatest unanswered prayer in all of history? Good job, second gathering. First gathering got it too. I told them that you guys wouldn't get it, but you got it. Uh, Take that off the screen. Hold on a minute. So what's happening is Jesus has been arrested. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. In hours, he will be mocked, beaten, scourged, his flesh ripped from his body, nailed to a cross, and he'll die there. And that was real. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was sweating drops of blood, an actual medical condition, hematidrosis, such incredible, unbelievable stress that the vessels under the skin were rupturing and blood was coming, pouring out of his skin. 
And his desperation is expressed by his prayer. Going a little further, Jesus fell on his face to the ground. He prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup, speaking of his suffering on the cross, be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And we're not told that Jesus just prays that once, but that Jesus prays that three times. He persisted in prayer. Three times, Jesus, in his relationship with the Father, Father, if this is possible, let this cup, and it wasn't only merely the, the suffering in his human body, it was also the weight of the sins of the world placed upon him. Let this pass from before me. Now, I want you to notice that in his praying, Jesus is working from the same assumptions that he's calling us to in the text before us today. When he says, if it is possible, he is keeping in mind God's sovereignty. When he says, not as I will, but as you will, he's keeping in mind God's purposes. God, in his sovereignty, according to his will, said to his son in the shadow of the cross, no. So a a question worth pondering is, what if God had said yes? If God had said yes, would that then mean that God was good? Because he got out of Jesus, he got Jesus out of the suffering before him? Would that not have made God a liar then? Because God had promises, God had purposes, God had given prophecies. God said that he would provide a way, that he would give his only son, that the Messiah would come and die in our place on our behalf, even though the prayer was desperate and heartfelt. For God to be good, God had to say no. And so it is in our lives. But those Gethsemanes are hard, hard times. If you believe, if you have faith, means if we are willing to believe in the character of God as sovereign and good. It has nothing to do with the size of our faith. Who who would have had more faith in Jesus? We think that because Jesus made a size analogy that he was saying our faith needs to be bigger that it all depends on the size of our belief or faith because he compared it to a mustard seed. Listen, he's doing exactly the opposite. Have you seen a mustard seed lately? No, you haven't seen one lately, but you know that they're tiny little seeds. And what does Jesus say? He says, even if your faith was the size of a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mountain, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would happen. It is not about the size of our faith or the depth of our belief. It is about the object of our faith and the one in whom we believe. And even if we're able to place a little bit of trust in him, mustard seed size, God is able to deal with the mountains in our lives. It's about the object of our faith. He's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good, all-loving, and always right. 
Think about what Paul said. I'll show it to you in just a moment in in Romans chapter 8 about prayer. Because Paul was also someone who knew no answers to prayer. We're told in one of his epistles that Paul had what he called a thorn in the flesh. We're not told what it is. We don't know if it was merely some physical malady. We don't know if it was from some injury or something he was born with. It, it, it uh, It could have been some social stigma that was placed on him as an apostle. It could have been some emotional strife that he was going through. We don't know. But he said, I have this thorn in the flesh. And he said that he prayed three times that God would take it away. He, like Jesus, persisted in prayer. He asked God to take it away. And the only answer he got from Jesus in the end was, my grace is sufficient for you. That's a hard, it's a hard no. Paul was really, truly suffering. My grace is sufficient for you. Seems to me that sometimes when there's mountains in our lives, It's not only that God will remove it. Sometimes he's actually enabling us to crawl up it and over it. My grace is sufficient for you, means Paul, for everything that I have sovereignly in my goodness allowed into your life, I will enable you to endure for my glory and for your good. So Paul had a hard-fought theology of prayer. He'd experience some real dissonance and disappointment. And yet he says in Romans chapter 8 this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Pause right there. Give me your attention. There's a couple of things Paul is saying here. But one of the things he's saying is that we don't always know how we ought to pray. Because as we already said, our wills do not always align with God's wills. But the beautiful promise that he makes is even when we don't know how to, how to pray, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is working in us to bring us in accordance with God's will. Whether we know it or not, Sometimes in sort of mysterious, ethereal ways through like prayer language and prophecy and unknown tongues, the Spirit prays through us according to God's will. And other times in formational ways, He's shaping us and He's forming us to bring us into a place of understanding and laying hold of and walking in God's will for us. So I think that what this does is it gives us permission to pray wrong prayers. Because listen, no matter what we pray, we're not going to make God do something stupid. It's not like we need to worry like, I better not pray that because then God will do that and that's the wrong thing to do. And then if he does that, the whole world's complete. It's all going down. God is sovereign. God is good. Prayer is a means by which he accomplishes his will. So I would say, don't worry about what you're praying. Keep on praying. The Holy Spirit is at work in you to bring you in accordance with God's will. Just keep on praying. And then look at the promise Paul makes. And again, this is hard-fought theology for him because he knew suffering. He says in verse 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul 
believe that God's no to him was better than his own yes for himself. That's another one where we're supposed to go, ooh. No? I'll say it again for you. Paul believed that God's no to him was even better than Paul's own yes for himself. Okay. I could tell that one was, you just threw it to me. No problem. Paul's yes to himself was this mountain of pain, this thorn in the flesh, this affliction, this messenger from Satan, he termed it. This mountain, I need to be rid of this God. And God said no. And yet Paul is able to write to the church in Rome and say, God is working all things together for my good according to his purpose. So that even though his feelings may not have been good around it, and even though his perception was that this was something that needed to go, his hard-fought theological assumption from which he chose to live was God's no is better than my yes, for God is always good to me. And the tragedy that's like a possibility in all these things is not that we might not get something that we want. The tragedy is that we might miss something that God wants for us. James, there's one in the front row. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick. James says this. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. So there's two things going on there. Number one, our motives then kind of become a qualification for answered prayer. And you know what? Motives are a tough thing. Like, who knows their motives? I, <laughs> I, the vast majority of my prayers are, are, are probably selfish and have to do with my will and my wants as opposed to God's. So sometimes that's, that's the issue. But remember, keep on praying. You're not going to make God do something stupid according to your will. Keep on praying. But the salient point, the first thing that that text taught us is indeed actually pray. Because the possibility and the t- possible tragedy is not missing something that we want, but missing something rather that God wants for us. You have not because you ask not. And what Jesus is teaching us in our text, among other things, is that there, is, there are infinite resources available to us in God. And let me say this, this is an incredibly, the- incredibly important theological point. There are certain things, Scripture tells us, that God will only do in response to prayer. There are certain things that God will only do in response to prayer. Allow me to illustrate. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, with God. He's been up there for 40 days. Israel, camped around the base of the mountain, gets a little antsy. They're like camped in the wilderness, and they're just waiting for Mo up on the hill, having a kumbaya party for 40 days. And so they go to Aaron, the high priest, the guy who's supposed to be in charge of this whole gig after Mo, and they say, listen, you've got to make us a God that we can see. Because we can't see anything and Moses is gone, Moses is up there. You've got to make us a God that you can see. And um, Aaron says, okay, give me your gold. Nice move there, Aaron. Give me your gold. He takes all their gold, and he makes for them the golden calf. And he says, behold your God that brought you out of Egypt. 
And it says in Exodus 32 that they began to celebrate around this golden calf and they engaged in the English translation is revelry. The Hebrew idea is sexual acts of worship. And so back to Mo and God on the mountain, God says to Moses, Moses, get down the mountain because your people, you notice that? God says to Moses, your people are acting wickedly down below. And so Moses heads down the mountain. He sees what's going on. His like mind is blown, of course. And God says, Moses, step aside because I am going to wipe these people out. Now, the assumption that we have to work from is God is good. God is sovereign. God would have been totally just, justified, righteous, and right in judging Israel for their sin with that false God. He said, Moses, step aside. I'm going to wipe them out. I, I, I'll just start a whole new nation from you. I'll go plan B here. And Moses, an incredible moment of compassion and clarity, prays for the people of Israel. And he says, oh God, your people, see what he does there? Who you brought up out of Egypt, oh God, have mercy on them. Because you made certain promises to their father Abraham. God, fulfill your promises to your people and have mercy on them and don't judge them. And the Bible says in Exodus 32 that God relented. He was going to judge them. He wasn't joking. He wasn't like setting Moses up. It wasn't a bait and switch. He was going to judge them and he was just and right and righteous in doing so. One man asked God to have mercy and God said, okay, and have mercy on the people. Now juxtapose that to Ezekiel chapter 22. In Ezekiel chapter 22, we have many years later, almost the same thing happening. Israel is fooling around with false gods and acting immorally and wickedly before God. And God says in a warning through one of his prophets, I am going to judge them. And then it says at the end of Ezekiel 22, but God looked for one person who would stand in the gap and plead their case and there was none to be found. So God judged them. There are certain things that God will only do in response to prayer. It's not that God was being forced to do something he didn't want to do. Remember, prayer is not God relegating his sovereignty to us. God is working his sovereignty. Prayer is God working his sovereignty through us. God always prefers mercy over judgment. But God is a right and righteous judge. So there is always judgment, but God is always willing to extend mercy. And one man asked for mercy for a whole nation and the course of history was changed where no one would ask and so receive, judgment came. There are certain things that God will only do as an expression of his sovereignty through prayer. The only thing that God loves more than working his will and his promises is working his will and his promises in response to his people's prayer. I don't know about you, but for me, that brings like a real weighty and wonderful reality to prayer. When I think about my kids, when I think about my wife and my marriage, when I think about our church, when I think about our community, when I think about my life, 
You have not because you ask not. There are certain things that God will only do in response to prayer. And we and those in our lives can miss some good work of God because of our lack of prayer, our lack of asking. And God's will sometimes includes moving huge, horrible mountains in our lives. Now, I'm assuming we all understand that the moving of mountains is a metaphorical expression from Jesus here. He didn't mean like actually move mountains. There's no history of Jesus saying move to a mountain and it moved. There's no history of the disciples doing that. There's nothing in church history about that. He is using language that was common then and is common to us. Oh man, there's this giant mountain. How do I move this mountain? It was a saying of the day as it is now. But God's will sometimes includes moving, seemingly impossible, overwhelming, painful circumstances out of our way and out of our lives in response to prayer. But you have not because you ask not. And then sometimes God doesn't move mountains because God is good and he has some good thing purpose for us in the mountain. But we can always ask. And God is always at work when we're asking. We can always believe that God is at work when we are asking. The psalmist said, I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I shall call upon him as long as I live. And we know that every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. If we are praying, God is working. God is always working in response to prayer. Sometimes we have to persist. Sometimes there's warfare. Sometimes there's all this stuff going on. But what prayer is, is inviting God into your mountain problem. And when we don't pray, then we don't offer the invitation. And there are certain things that God will only do in response to prayer. So what is the biggest mountain confronting you right now? I want you to get it in your mind because I'm going to ask you to pray about it in a moment. Just by yourself. I won't make it uncomfortable in church today, even though Jesus said my house shall be a house of prayer. (laughs) Just by yourself. I want you to think about the biggest mountain Again, the metaphor is like impossible obstacles that we feel we can't even bear. I'm going to ask you to bring that before Jesus today. You invite him into that mountain situation. Maybe your mountain is a mountain of bitterness. Maybe when you close your eyes at night, you have harmful, murderous thoughts about someone because you are holding them so captive to your bitterness, but you are now realizing that you are the only one who is enslaved in your bitterness. And it's so deep and it's been there so long and it hurts so much that it is a mountain of bitter pain. Invite Jesus into that. Maybe your mountain is something that's going on with your spouse. Maybe your mountain is some financial thing. What is this big mountain? And ask God to deal with it. 
It's bigger than us. And maybe he will. Maybe he'll give you the grace to exist in it. But we have not because we ask not. And every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. So, between you and Jesus now, I'm going to give you just a couple minutes to bring your mountain and maybe mountains before God. It'll just be a quiet time, silent, holy moment when everybody's praying. And then in a bit, the worship team will come up. Go ahead.